Thank you, Sarah. And can we just give it up for Allie and the band one more time? Would you guys do that? Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. And uh, that was Allie. She's a personal friend of ours from Portland, Oregon, who came all the way to Phoenix to help lead worship. So we're so glad to have her. And we're thankful not only for her, but for the cloud cover that she brought in from Portland. And as Phoenicians, we don't get that often. I try to tell her this is like this all the time. So just let her know that. And um, we're so thankful to have her, thankful to have you here to worship with us as we look at God's Word. We're going to look at that text we just read, Mark chapter 10. If you didn't already, grab a Bible, get God's Word in front of you, pull it up on your phone. Uh, we're going to dive into this text on marriage and divorce. And if you are new with us, we're in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Mark. The series is called, Who Do You Say That I Am? We're looking at the life of Jesus and how his life affects our lives. And maybe you're new to church or new to Jesus, new to the gospel of Mark, and, and you're not sure, like, does the Bible relate to me in my real life? Like, does the, does the Bible talk about real life issues? And today, you're going to see it does, right? It talks about marriage and divorce. And we see that throughout the gospel of Mark. We see it in particular here. And one of the things we see in, in this passage, as well as some other passages passages that do relate to our lives and our real life issues is that Jesus can tend to make us uncomfortable, right? Anybody listen when we read? Feel uncomfortable a little bit? Last week when we talked about cutting off your hands so you don't sin, feel uncomfortable a little bit, right? Jesus will, will invade our spaces and talk about real life issues, and if you are new to church, that's the amazing thing about the Bible and about Jesus but it can make us uncomfortable. So I want to preface where we're going just a little bit to say this. Uh, a lot of you in here are married. Right? I'm looking around at married couples. And some of you are, are married, and, and you would say, right now, my marriage is in a strong and a joyful place. Like you're holding your wife's hand as we speak. Right? Now, I also know that some of you are elbowing one another. <laughs> and are like, you, are you taking notes? Bring a pen? Right? You should. Get it out. Right now. You know, like some of you are not in a fantastic place in your marriage. And if you were just to be transparent like Allie was with us a little bit ago, hey, marriage is hard. And we're in a difficult spot right now. It's not just hard vaguely. Like it's hard for us. Like we're not connecting. Life is hard. Finances is, are hard. Spiritually, it's hard. And, and marriage is, is difficult. And we feel like we're in a broken place. And so I know both sides of the aisle are here. So my prayer for you as we, as we go through this, as I prayed for you all week, is that you would be strengthened in your marriage no matter where you are. That if you think we're in a great place, well, guess what? You need to recenter on the gospel and Jesus' grand design for marriage and continue to grow in that place in your marriage. And maybe for some of you who are in that strong place, you need to look across the aisle to somebody who's struggling in their marriage and help them and pray for them and be there for them. And if you are struggling, my, my prayer for you is that you would get a grander view of your marriage. That you wouldn't just look at the horizontal relationship with that person, all the things that they don't do, and the way they push the toothpaste out of the tube, and the way they leave their socks, and what they said to you or didn't say to you even this morning, that you would take your focus off of that and all the brokenness and look at the beauty of marriage from God's standpoint. And that you would walk out of here, not everything perfect, but strengthened to go fight clean and, and live this marriage that God has called you to live, All right? So that's if you're married. A lot of you are thinking, well, Tim, I'm single. Where do I fall on the map, right? 
I'm not even dating anyone. I don't know when I'm gonna get married. Well, I would imagine some of you wanna get married one day. And so I wanna give you a vision for marriage. And listen, I want to help you prepare for the marriage that's coming one day. I wanna help you prepare for that so I can save you from some of the pain that can be associated with that, right? And so we all need to learn about this, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you don't care about marriage at all, this passage doesn't just teach us about marriage, it teaches us about God. So everybody lean in, right? Everybody lean in for that. We all need to learn about God this morning. So look at it with me. We're gonna look at Jesus' message about marriage with grace and truth. Our first point is this, if you take notes, hard hearts, hard hearts. We say that in verses one through five. Verse one says this. It says, and he left there, that's Jesus, And he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And so Jesus is is traveling, he's teaching, and this is a rhythm. Crowds gather, he stops, he teaches. Right? If you've been with us, we've seen that rhythm. Mark tells us that's a rhythm. It says at the end of verse 1, look at the verse, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. This is Jesus' rhythm. Crowds gather, he teaches teaches. But another rhythm is starting to develop. Look at verse 2. It's the Pharisees, that's the religious people of that day, trying to test Jesus. So Jesus has this rhythm. He's, he's traveling. He, he's talked about being the Christ and the Messiah at this point in the Gospel of Mark, who he is, what he's going to do. And, and as he's traveling on his way to Jerusalem to die on a cross and rise again, as he's traveling, he stops. Crowds gather. He teaches But we also see this rhythm of Pharisees, religious people who are trying to test him and trying to trap him. And the way they do that, look at it with me, is ask him a question. They say, is it lawful, Jesus, for a man to divorce his wife? Now, I don't know how you read scripture, but as I read scripture and as I study it specifically, I always try to put myself in the picture, in the story. Right? We're at 2019, long time later, but this was real events, real people. And so I try to put myself in it and be like, okay, Jesus is teaching crowds, then religious people. Hey, what about divorce? What would that have been like? Was Jesus preaching a sermon and he was done and he transitioned to Q&A? And the Pharisees are like, hey, I have a question about divorce. Was he teaching about being the Christ and the Messiah? And the Pharisees just randomly are like, Okay, Christ, live, die, resurrect. What about divorce? You know, I'm just trying to understand what what was going on. Mark doesn't really tell us, but I try to put myself in in those shoes and just understand, are they stopping him mid-sermon and being like, okay, enough of this Christ stuff, like divorce. Like we want to test you on that. How is this happening? That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're, They're testing Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. And I love Jesus. Because if you look at it, he doesn't directly answer their question. What does he do? He answers their question with another question. Don't you just love Jesus? I mean, you should read the Gospels and read about Jesus. People come up to Jesus all the time and they ask him stuff, like really big questions that they want to learn about. And Jesus will often change the topic. Jesus will often say, let me tell you a story. He's like Grandpa Jesus. Let me tell you a parable and confuse you a little bit, right? Or he'll ask you a question and repeat back what you just asked him, right? And that's what he does here, and it's just amazing. 
Uh, so Jesus, knowing who's asking this question, it's Pharisees, it's religious people, he puts the question back on them. And he says, well, what does Moses command you? You see, Jesus knows what's happening here. He knows they're trying to test him. He knows they already know the answer to the question. Why? They're Pharisees. They're religious people. They not only knew the law, they had memorized it. They know what the law says about divorce. And so Jesus is just making the point, hey, I know what you're trying to do. You tell me. What do they say? Verse 4. Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, they're quoting Deuteronomy 24 there, Old Testament, the law, where Moses did give a concession for divorce. And the context of that day, people were trying to find loopholes, just like the Pharisees were. People were walking up and saying, hey, how can I get rid of this spouse? How can I move on from this? Like, marriage is really hard. Like, I want to find a loophole. How can we get divorced? And in that culture, for a woman, that was incredibly difficult because once they got divorced, no more respect, no more trust, no more value in that culture. And so what Moses did in Deuteronomy 24 was he gave a concession for a divorce. He said, hey, if you're going to get divorced, you at least have to write a certificate so this woman can pick up and go on with her life and isn't viewed as a harlot or an adulteress, which she would have been viewed as. And so Moses gave this concession. And we see that in Jesus' response to them. Verse 5, Jesus says to them, hey, it was because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. He says, this was about hardness of heart. And if you notice, he says, your hardness of heart. Like the Pharisees, the religious people in this moment, all these years later after this Old Testament moment in Deuteronomy 24. The Pharisees weren't there when Moses gave this concession for divorce. So why does he say your hardness of heart, Pharisees? Because Jesus is pointing out that their question, hey, Let's get to the nitty-gritty. Let's debate divorce. Let's find a loophole. That's the same question everybody's been asking since the beginning. And it's a hardness of heart. Maybe even what you're experiencing right now, like as we talk about marriage and divorce, if you're honest, my heart's a little hard. I mean, how could Jesus say what he goes on to say? How could Jesus talk about, he does not know my spouse. Like, how could Jesus talk about marriage and elevate it like this? I mean, maybe for a pastor and his wife, maybe for those other people over there, but like, my marriage is hard. Like, it's toxic. It's painful. And maybe your heart is hard. And maybe you're looking for a loophole like the Pharisees were, like the people in Deuteronomy were. And Jesus is pointing out, hey, listen, we have hard hearts. And so instead of focusing on marriage, we want to debate divorce. Isn't that the truth in our culture? Jesus is trying, he's trying to broaden your view of marriage. Hey, let's not debate divorce. Let's get to the design of marriage. And that's what he does. Look at verse 6 with me. Our second point is holy union. Holy union. Verse 6 Jesus switches topics, seemingly, from divorce to marriage. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus says, you want to start with Moses? No, no, no. We need to start with the maker. You want to start with divorce? No, no, no. We need to start with design. We can't debate divorce if you don't get marriage. And so he points us, he points them back 
to marriage. Let's get past our hard, hard, hard hearts. Let's listen to what Jesus says about marriage. He quotes Genesis 2, the very beginning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So instead of debating divorce, Jesus gives us the design of marriage. Look at what he says. He says, it's male and female. These are two different people, diverse people, male and female. But they are becoming one. They are becoming unified. He says, hold fast, one flesh. He repeats that just in case you didn't get it the first time. No longer two, different, but one, unified. Verse 9, join together. They want to talk about concessions. Jesus wants to talk about creation. They want to talk about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about design. Because he knows they have hard hearts. Because maybe Jesus knows you have a hard heart this morning. And you want to focus on these details of divorce. And Jesus wants you to point you back to the, the beauty of diversity and union with one another. That's what marriage is. There's a, a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler who is now a local pastor here and an author, and I got to hear him speak on marriage and sexuality, and he didn't get to marriage and sexuality for a long time because he talked about what Jesus is talking about, this, this broader narrative of creation and, and how marriage fits into that, and he talked about this beautiful diversity and union, right? Male and female, diverse, amen? Different. If you know any male and female, they're different. But hold fast, one flesh, one flesh, joined together. And he talked about that, but he said, hey, it's not even just marriage that's diversity and union. It's all of God's creation, that it did start in the beginning. And it started with things like night and day, seemingly opposites, night and day. But their diversity and union, what happens when night and day come together? A sunrise. They do join together. They do become one. And listen, it's beautiful. We wake up early to see one of those, right? But it's not just with night and day working like this. It's also with land and water. What happens when land, diverse, water, diverse? What happens when they become in union with one another? The beach, right? We drive six hours to California to go there. We buy oceanfront property and pay more because it's amazing to see land and water, two diverse, different things come together and become one. We see that with heaven and with earth. We see that when the clouds, you ever seen this? When the clouds meet the peak of a mountain? You ever seen that and thought, man, I need to go hike that mountain and not just do a trail around it. I need to summit it. Right? And a couple hours in of the strenuous incline hike when your hamstrings are getting sore and you're thinking, why did I do this? What keeps you going? I got to get there. I got to summit. Like, we got to do it. This is such an amazing experience. Why? Because heaven and earth are meeting. It's a beautiful thing because diversity is coming in to union with one another. Male and female is like that. Different, male, female, different. But when they come together in a union that's centered on Jesus, it's beautiful. That's why some of you cry at weddings, right? 
That's why some of you get emotional talking about marriage, whether it's hard or good, because you think about, I'm so different from my spouse. But when we love each other and we listen to each other and we lead one another, it is beautiful like a sunrise, like a peak of a mountain, diversity coming into union together. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus is trying to paint a picture of marriage like that. He's saying, let's not start with Moses. Let's go back to the maker. Let's not talk about concessions. Let's talk about creation. Broaden your scope of what marriage is. Some of you this morning, you've never thought about marriage that way. You thought about it as an agreement. You thought about it as a contract, not a covenant, as we sang earlier. You think about it as how little can I invest into this and get the most return possible And you've never broadened the scope to see this is God's created, beautiful, amazing, phenomenal design. And Jesus is trying to point them to that. Jesus is trying to point you to that, even if it's the first time you're hearing that. This is what happens in marriage. It's diversity. It's union coming together. And if you notice, look at it with me. Jesus says this like it's a reality. Look at what he says. He says, They are no longer two, but one. God has joined together. You see, typically the way we talk about oneness and marriage is like it's a hope of ours. It's a dream. Maybe one day, like we'll become one. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Oneness, diversity, and union, that's not a hope. That's a result of marriage. That God joined that together. God made two people who were diverse, who were different, meet and become one in union with one another. That's the result. And so listen, if you're married today, no matter how close you feel to your spouse, you are one if you're married. Because that's the institution. Because that's the created order that Jesus is talking about. You are one. Even if you don't like your spouse right now, you're one. Why? Because you're in an institution that's not about you and it's not about her. It's about God. He created it. You are one. That's the result. That's your reality if you're a married couple. Now, here's what we do. We, we don't base things on creation. We base things on circumstance. Right? And so we'll often try to downplay the oneness, the diversity in union. We'll, we'll often try to say things like, well, Tim, I mean, yeah, maybe for some other people it is like that, but we got married in front of the JP. I mean, it was quick. A lot of things were happening then, and we just did it, and if I had to go back, maybe I wouldn't have done it, and like, he's a different person now, and I mean, if you heard what she said to me and how she treated me now, like, it's a different situation, like, I don't know that we're the one diversity and union, like, it's a sunset, not my marriage, like, that was a long time ago, and, and you start to downplay the oneness that Jesus describes, the reality of marriage that he describes. You downplay it for your own life. Because why? Marriage is hard. Divorce seems like it would be easier. I just need a way out. And if I can downplay all these things, if I can erase the romance, maybe I can erase the oneness. And Jesus is saying, God joined the oneness together. You can't erase it. I remember meeting with a couple for counseling at one point years ago. They hadn't been married that long, just a few years. And we're talking through things and all the conflict. And one of them was venturing out to go to another person. 
and they wanted a divorce, and one of them wanted to stay in the marriage. And so we start in counseling, and we're trying to get them back, not just to see the conflict, but to see the created order of marriage and see the beauty of it and see the night and day meeting and how beautiful that was. Do you remember how beautiful your wedding day was? Do you remember what you said? Do you remember the commitment you made, the covenant you made? Do you remember your engagement? And I would talk about that and just, hey, tell me about your engagement. Let's just all remind ourselves. And the husband talked about the engagement, like the backyard, this person's house. I said these things. This happened. I gave the ring. I got on one knee. All these things happened. And I, and I looked at the wife and I said, hey, do you, you remember that? you remember anything different about that day and special about that day for you? And she just said, No. And I was like, well, you, you don't remember, like, some of those specifics he said? And she was like, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> My wife and I are kind of confused, and we're like, we need to assess some different things now. We're like, Alzheimer's, is dementia, like, you're too young for that. Like, do you not remember other things, like big moments in your life? Do you not remember those things? She said, no, I remember lots of things. I don't remember that. And we start to get to the bottom of that, and she was downplaying the marriage. She was trying to think, if I can erase the romance, I mean, we just kind of did this thing and it was paperwork and it was with the state and yeah, sure, all those things, but I don't actually love him. If I can erase the romance, then I can erase the oneness and then I can be freed up to do what I want to do. And Jesus is gonna broaden your view and say, hey, this, God joined this together. The two have become one. This is your reality if you are married. And they're looking for permissions. Jesus is saying, I'm not even sure it's possible to break this up. You don't understand how oneness works. And he's broadening their view on marriage. He's broadening our view on oneness in marriage. This is why Jesus can say something so offensive, so radical, so extreme in the next few verses. And some of you heard as we read earlier and caught the adultery and those things, and you're wanting to get to that question. And this is why we have to set the stage for, how could Jesus say everybody's committing adultery who gets divorced and gets remarried? How could Jesus say that? It's a oneness. It's God ordained. It goes back to creation. It involves not just marriage, but, but all these other complementary pairs in life. This is how God has wired diversity and union. And so you try to separate that, you try to pull that apart, that is significant. And that's what Jesus says. Look at verse 10. We see a hurtful separation. Verse 10, it says, And in the house the disciples asked him again, about this matter. They're thinking what you're thinking. Okay, great, marriage, beauty, diversity and union. What about divorce? I need some answers about divorce. And Jesus is gracious to give them some. Verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I think a lot of us, if we really looked at that, like adultery, what does adultery mean in our culture, we would say to Jesus, Jesus, I don't think you understand what adultery means. Right? Jesus, adultery means you're married and you cheat on that spouse while you're still married. That's adultery. Like, Jesus, I don't, divorce and then get, how is, how is that adultery? 
And Jesus would again tell you and tell them, you don't understand what marriage means. Like, you think we can just sign some th- stuff with the state and like break the contract and like figure out who gets what and separate all the items. And you're talking about a man-made thing that you are doing to a God-ordained institution. And so in his eyes, you're still one. And signing the papers and change that. God created oneness. The two became one flesh. He joined you together. And so how could he say adultery? Did he get confused about the meaning of adultery? No, he's going back to that grand view of oneness and saying when you sever that, it's like adultery. It's like cheating on that spouse. Now, as we look at the whole of Scripture, we can see some exceptions, and I don't want to get into that too much. Why? Because Jesus doesn't do that here. He didn't seem to feel the need as he's teaching to get into all the exceptions, but I do want to give you them, but not go into them thoroughly. We see adultery, Matthew 5, as a reason for a divorce. We see abandonment, if you want to write these down, look at them later, 1 Corinthians 7, as a, as a reason biblically for divorce. We see some exceptions. We see death as an exception, Romans 7. Hey, if somebody dies, hey, you're, you're freed from that oneness, that beauty and diversity and union with one another. So we see things like adultery, abandonment, death, and other places in Scripture. Jesus knew that, but he didn't seem to want to go into that. Again, you got to remember the context. Pharisees are trying to test him. People have hard hearts. They're trying to look for a loophole. And Jesus is saying, there's more to marriage than, than this. There's more to marriage than loopholes. In fact, as we sang earlier, it's a picture. It's a reflection of you and the church. And so why is it adultery? Why, why is it such a harsh language, offensive language, radical language? Because if marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and Christ is faithful to his church, and Christ unconditionally loves his church, and Christ forgives his church, and does that forever, and we can be sealed with the Holy Spirit and take comfort when we go to bed at night, whether we had a good day or a bad day, that we're loved by a, a God in heaven. That, that whether we are loving other people well or doing the right things or whether we're sinning a lot or whether we're doing righteous deeds or whether we sinned a lot in the past and we remember a lot of those sins or whether there's a lot of sins we have forgotten that whatever the case is, we have a God in heaven, a heavenly father in heaven who loves us unconditionally in covenant with us and that marriage is supposed to reflect that horizontally reflecting the vertical. And so how can he speak so strongly? It's a oneness that he created, but it's also a oneness that's reflecting his oneness with you. And so when we're unfaithful, when we commit adultery, when we get divorced, we are representing a false gospel, a false God who who doesn't love us, who leaves us when things get hard. And Jesus is trying to let us in on that. Hey, this is bigger than you think it is. And so... What do we do, right? I'm not naive to know that there's some people in here who have been divorced. You're thinking, Tim, okay, I'm an adulterer. Is that what you're saying? I know there's some people in here who are struggling with infidelity and maybe the possibility of that. And you're struggling with, this is who I am. I'm an adulterer. Like it was just an affair. You say adultery. That seems so harsh. Like what do we do? What does Jesus do? with adulterers. 
And we don't, we don't have to wonder, do we? Anybody remember the story of the woman caught in a, adultery? There's some people around this woman who's caught in adultery, and they're getting ready to do what? Stoner. And Jesus says, hey, if any of you have never sinned, you go ahead and throw that stone. What happens? Stones drop. They run. Right? Because they know at some level they're an adulterer. How do we know that? Jesus says, if you lust after another person, you committed adultery. Sermon on the Mount. So listen, right now, in this moment, if you have been divorced and you're thinking, well, I'm an adulterer, it's really hard to hear. You feel isolated. You feel shamed. You need to know you, you join with every other person in this room as an adulterer. That Jesus says, if you lust after another, just, just a thought, yeah, if you lust, that's adultery. And so if you've been divorced, you're an adulterer. If you've had a lustful thought, you're an adulterer. Welcome to church. Right? That's what Jesus says. But, but how does he respond to the woman in that moment? Hey, not only don't throw stones, he says, who's here to condemn you? He says, no one. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So all of us, lean in. All of us are adulterers. How do you respond to that? You're not condemned. But go and sin no more. Right? You're in a new marriage. You've been divorced, remarried. Well, maybe I, should I get out of this? No, don't go on sinning. Don't get divorced and sin again. You're loved by God. You're not condemned by God. Go and sin no more. You're married. You're not divorced yet, but you've been thinking about it. You've been playing those thoughts over in your mind of like, man, if I could just escape from the responsibility of this spouse, these kids, the daily grind, I could just get out of that. I mean, it would just... Man, life would just be more simple and easy. I mean, and what about that girl at the gym? And what about that girl from my past? And what about, well, that person, like, you have the chance today. You're not condemned, but go and sin no more. Pursue your spouse. Pursue oneness with your spouse. The reality that Jesus says you have, pursue it, experience it, work on it. It is hard. Listen, can I just tell you, I've been married for almost 14 years. It's hard. I'm a pastor. It's hard. It takes work. I, I look at texts like this that remind me of the oneness that my wife and I have. And sometimes I'm like, I, I don't always see that financially oneness, physical oneness, relational oneness, emotional oneness. Like, and, I, and I think, but God says that's what marriage is. And I've experienced hints of that. And I want to pursue that reality and not some fantasy that, that seems like it's going to solve all my problems, but as all of you know, who have known people who have been divorced, who have been divorced yourself, it doesn't solve the problems. What does it do? It creates new sets of problems. And it's not just for you. It creates problems for your kids and your family and people around you. Listen, I know it's hard. Pursue the oneness. You're not condemned. Go and sin no more. Pursue the oneness in your marriage. I read uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow, an actress, was talking about divorce, and she went through a divorce with, I think, the Coldplay singer, if you're reading the magazines at the time. And uh, Gwyneth 
as she's going through the divorce or about to go through it, she said, hey, you know, I, I really hope we're going to try to do this as smooth as possible, this divorce, as smooth, as quick as possible, so we don't have to go through the really difficult stuff and so our kids can be saved from that pain. And then I read her talk about it after the divorce, and she said, despite our efforts, that was one of the most painful things I've ever been through in my life. You see, whatever you're thinking right now and maybe disagreeing about divorce and stances and we're like, well, I heard this one pastor and I heard this thing. Divorce is painful, isn't it? It's a hurtful separation. It's not solving a problem. It's creating new problems. It's no mistake that the next passage that we're going to get into next week, it talks about kids and kids coming up to Jesus. That divorce doesn't just hurt you, it hurts your kids that it hurts them for a long time, not just at the beginning. It hurts them for holidays. They're supposed to be joyous, and some of you know this because you have parents who are divorced, and you go into a holiday not thinking about the amazing food and celebration. You go into a holiday thinking about whose house do I go to first? How do we split our time? How do I explain this to my kids? How do I not take sides? How do I not get into it with my whole family? How do I help them talk to each other and be nice to each other? You're still experiencing the pain of divorce because it's painful, it's hurtful, it's not what God intended because he intended oneness. And so today, as we all need to respond to this, single, married, strong marriage, marriage in a tough spot, what do you do? First thing is this, if you want to write it down. You read Mark 10, 1 through 12, and you believe Jesus. You believe Jesus. You believe his view of marriage over years. You trust his view of marriage over years. I know that's hard. I know there's shame. I know there's confusion. But at the end of the day, you can be God, and you can create marriage, and you can give the parameters or you can let God be God, and you can trust that he has a better plan than you do, even if you don't see it, right? So you take a deep breath. Just all to do this together. Believe Jesus. Jesus, this is hard. This is crazy. This is offensive. But I trust you and your word over me and my word. And you believe his view of marriage. The second thing is you work to experience the oneness that he has already provided for you in marriage. You work for it. You work for it financially. You work for it physically. You work for it spiritually. You work for it emotionally. You work for it financially. You don't have two separate bank accounts. You don't hide money. You put it all together. You work for it. Oneness, financially. You work for it sexually. Some of you are thinking, Tim, I got kids. Like, things just don't happen like they used to. This oneness that we used to have sexually, we don't have it anymore. You work for it. You schedule it in. Some of you who are single are thinking, that sounds lame. And you say that because you're not married yet and you don't have kids yet. You work for it. You work for the oneness that you already have. Jesus said you have it. You work for it sexually. You schedule it in. You work for it spiritually. You think, well, we don't have time. We're going place to place. We're doing all these things. We got to pay the bills. We got to do all these things. Like, Tim, how, do we, how are we supposed to be one spiritually? Like, I don't remember the last time we, we prayed together, looked at the Bible together. I mean, you probably do that because you're a pastor and that's your job to lead your wife. Like, I, 
How do I do that? You work for it. You schedule it in. You look at the scope of your life and all the things you're doing on your calendar, and you click the delete button on some of those things, and you add the button that says, like, time with my wife, 10 minutes to read scripture together or to pray together or to listen to podcasts together or to read a book on marriage together and recenter your view on marriage to God's view. You work for it. And I know some of you are thinking, Tim, this is impossible. And I would tell you, it's not. I know lots of people who have worked for it, who are experiencing this oneness. Uh, One couple in particular, we helped plant a church with in Austin, Texas, when I first started out in ministry. We had a core group of 25 people. And we wanted to have elders, leaders in the church who would shepherd the church as we started the church. And before we even launched the church, we had one of our three elders commit adultery. And it should have killed our church. Not a great way to start a church. It should have killed their marriage. And there were many times, I met with them for the course of like the next two to three years, and there were many times where it seemed like it was going to kill their marriage. But it didn't. Because they worked for it. They, They saw the way Jesus had loved them unconditionally, sacrificially. All the bad, really all the bad things I've thought, yeah, All the sins I've committed and remember, yeah, all the sins I've forgotten, Jesus loves me that way, he loves me this way vertically, I can love my spouse this way horizontally, and they worked on it financially, spiritually, emotionally, they worked on it for years, and I can tell you that like nine years later, they're still married, it's not perfect, but they're still married, that church still exists in Austin, Texas, And they have kids who know Jesus and have gotten baptized. It's possible, right? But it may take some work. And the grace of God and the power of God and the oneness that God has offered you in the cross, it may take some work, but that's what God is calling you to. I started at the beginning saying, hey, some of you have strong marriages, some of you don't, some of you are single, some of you aren't married. If you were just to look at your life today and say, man, we are in a good place, things aren't perfect, can I just ask you to pray for our other couples in our church? If you're single today and you're like, this whole marriage thing, like, I just, I want that, I don't have, can I just ask you, just in this moment, pray for yourself and your future marriage and and God's vision for your marriage, and also pray for the couples, the married couples who are fighting for their marriage. Would you do that? Would you pray, particularly if you're in a stronger place in your marriage, would you just take a second to pray for our other couples? We're gonna end that way. Let's pray together. Well, God, I want to thank you for this hard passage. It is a hard passage. It's a heavy one. And maybe for some of us, it's not. And God, I pray that those people right now would be praying and, and petitioning you, interceding with you for others who it is hard for and it is heavy for today. 
God, I pray that every man and woman and even child in here would know that they are not condemned. They are loved by a just, a holy, a righteous God, and a loving God. But a just, holy, and loving God who calls them go and sin no more. That, God, that we would look at our lives and see if there are any offensive ways in us, in our marriage, in our dating, in our singleness. And God, we would repent of those things and we would come to a gracious God who forgives us, but forgives us when we acknowledge our need to be forgiven, forgives us when we acknowledge our weakness and the hardship and the heaviness. So I just pray right now over these men and women for some freedom to acknowledge their weakness and their sin so they can be forgiven, so they can feel the love of a heavenly father that is for them, so they can have marriages that do reflect a relationship with the God of the universe. God, I pray for our church that we would have legacies of marriages who aren't perfect, but who are entirely reliant, desperately so, on your grace, and that we would grow in that grace together. It's in the name of Jesus I pray that. Amen.